Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Ephraim Karnafogel. Dr. Karnafogel received his BA from Yeshiva College and an MA and PhD from the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. Professor Karnafogel also received rabbinical ordination from Reitz, the Rabbi Isaac Elkanan Theological Seminary. Professor Karnafogel is the E. Billy Ivory University Professor of Jewish History, Literature, and Law at Bernard Revel, and also at Stern College for Women. Dr. Karnafogel is considered to be one of the foremost scholars of medieval Jewish history and rabbinic literature. Uh, Professor Karnafogel has written, edited numerous books, including, but not limited to, Jewish Education and Society in the High Middle Ages, The Intellectual History and Rabbinic Cultural Culture of Medieval Ashkenaz, Brothers from Afar, Rabbinic Approaches to Apostasy, Apostasy and Reversion in Middle Evil Europe, Between Rashi and Maimonides, Studies in Medieval Jewish Thought, Literature and Exegesis, and Scholarly Man of Faith, Studies in the Thought and Writing, of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik of Blessed Memory. And today we will be discussing the Talmudic commentaries, the Tosafot. Um, and just to get started, uh, you know, sometimes you're at the, at the table and people aren't that familiar with the Talmud and you say, oh, I, I learned the Tosafot today. And they say, who is that? As, as it's a commentary, but we know that it's many people. Generally speaking, who are the Tosafot and why are they called by that name? Well, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate your uh, precise introduction. Very good. Um, so uh, uh, in a word, as you suggested, we are not dealing with, as we do when we deal with Rashi, a single author, more or less, or as we deal with Maimonides or as we deal with Nachmanides or whoever it may be. We are dealing with a conglomeration, a conglomerate. The conglomerate can be defined by time. It can be defined by location. The earliest Tosafists um, are really in the mid-12th century. Uh, a name like Rabbeinu Tam, Yaakov Tam, a famous name, is one of the earliest. Not the earliest, I don't think, but one of the earliest. And it runs through the end of the 13th century, both in northern France and different places. There are different centers and that shifts, and in different places in Germany, the Rhineland, and later uh, more to the east in Germany as well. And so to be a Tosafist, you don't have to write Tosafot per se, but you have to be involved somehow in the study halls that produce those Tosafot. That's sort of how we define it. Um, again, uh, there are readers or listeners who might know more or less you might know that the Tosfot on the printed Talmud are fundamentally from northern France. Um, those are the ones that made it in, and we could talk later about some of that. Uh, but there were Tosfot written in Germany, and there were other works written in Germany that are Tosfot-like in terms of both method and perspective. You're not dealing with hundreds of people. You're dealing with tens of people. Um, it's a little bit of a, for the Americanized listeners, a Wizard of Oz phenomenon. It's a, it's a relatively small number of people producing an awful lot of literature with an awful lot of different perspectives. 
But again, there are there are circles, there are Batei Midrash and centers that can be identified. Uh, we, we know, I think most of them, if not all of them by now, we are learning more about what each one did. Um, so, and Tosfot means addenda. What are they addendering to? They're addending, not a verb, to the Talmud itself. In other words, they're expanding and not uh, free-forming, but they're applying the Talmud. But they're also studying very carefully Rashi's words, their ancestor, not he's not the father of all of them, uh, but their ancestor and sort of founder of this Ashkenazi group. And therefore, they are doing the same kinds of things to Rashi himself. Um, again, short summary, and I'll let you talk some more. First of all, close reading. Why does the Gemara pick this word and not that word? People think of Tosfot. Oh, dialectic. We compare, we contrast. Before you dialectize, also not a verb, you have to read. Close reading. Why this word? Why not that word? They do the same thing with the Gemara. They do the same thing with Rashi. You know, I like to I like to joke. They check the Gemara and Rashi's tzitzis first, right? They want to make sure the words are correct. Why is that word being used? That word suggests something subordinate. That word suggests something more critical. And then they, after that close reading, they will correlate and collate. How does this compare to any other Talmudic literature? And in many cases, even extra Talmudic literature, rabbinic literature. And if we find seeming contradictions, how do we resolve those? And how do we apply the distinctions that we derive from those resolutions? They'll do that to Tosfot, they'll do that to Rashi, they'll basically do that to anything that moves. But the things that move for them are these main uh, these main bodies. So how's that for a long answer to a short question? Yeah, that's a great answer to, to, be my, to, the my question, to a basic <laughs> question. Um, already alluded to, uh, Professor Karnapurgel, what are the major stages in the development of the Tosafot commentaries? Okay, so let's let's take our chronological scope. Um, you know, mid-12th century, again, Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi, we have actually uh, dates of ber- uh, years of birth and of death. Rashi is 1040 to 1105. His grandson, Rabbeinu Tam, again, is a good starting point for now. There are others, but that's a good starting point for now. His dates are 1100 to 1171. So approximately 1147 and a quarter is the beginning. And again, we run until the very end of the 13th century, mayor of Rottenburg, who's the last of the German Tosafists, even though he studied in France, we'll talk about that too. He dies in jail in a very difficult circumstance in 1293. Rabbeinu Peretz of Corbeil, sort of the last of the French Mohegan Tosafists, dies in 1297. So between those years, you're talking about approximately 150 years. The first period, and what some like to call the creative period, which is fair because it's extremely creative, is the period of, in northern France, Rabbeinu Tam, his main student and nephew, Rashi's great-grandson, if you're keeping score, uh, Ri of Dompierre, Yitzhak ben Shmuel of Dompierre, Ri Azakain, as he's called, who dies around 1190, and Ri's main student, Reb Shimshon ben Avram Mishans, the Rash Mishans, who really is responsible in many ways for systemic and systematic formulations. Not that Rabbeinu Tam doesn't write any Tosfot, not that Ri doesn't write any Tosfot, all the scholars argue who was the writer, who was the speaker, who was the better speechmaker. They have all kinds of interesting, uh, you know, sort of modern modern ideas, who's the talker, who's the writer, and so on. But Rashmi Shant is the one who kind of brings it together. Uh, I think especially for this august audience, Rashmi Shant makes Aliyah in 1210. 
dies in Israel in 1214, according to tradition, buried somewhere near Har HaKarmel. But in any case, so that first 50, 60 years, that's sort of the first drop in northern France. And that's a very creative drop because we've got this new dialectic method. It's not brand new, but this newly refurbished or newly souped up dialectic as taught by Rabbeinu Tam, as continued by Ri, as formulated. I mean, they're all teachers and all, but as formulated by Rashmi Shantz. On the German side during that period, again, different works and different kind of style, but uh, puttable in the same clause. We have, again, just to keep it in the family, somebody like uh, Ra'avan, Rebbe Yezebed Nelson of Mainz, who was born before the First Crusade in 1096, about six years old when it happened. He then remains in Rhineland, Germany, which, again, not completely incomparable. Well, we don't like to compare any of these things. Same way we talk about how quickly, so to speak, relatively speaking, and how fabulously, relatively speaking, you know, knowing that we lost a lot, how quickly Torah study recovered after the Shoah in Israel, the United States, and so on. This is, you know, Arab Rosh Hashanah, uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu works that way and things recover. So Eliezer of Mainz um, and his grandson, Raviyah, Eliezer ben Yoel Halevi, grandson through the son-in-law, Rabbi Yoel Halevi, they are in the same period in Germany, the same, you know, same approximate period. Uh, Ravan is a contemporary of Rabbeinu Tam, uh, Raviyah is a drop younger than Rashmi Shantz. They produce big works of halacha and tosfot. In other words, it's it's halacha, it's tosafist halachic study based on the Talmud, similar methods to what's found in France. I like to say, and this is really based on something that Professor Tashmalov Hashalom said, I say it my way with American slang, the French tosfot are a bit friskier, but the method is very similar. And um, so even the style is different. And the final point here, by the way, is in addition to the close reading and the dialectic and all this comparison, all this really systematic kind of comparison, leave no stone unturned, there is also application for halacha. And that's, again, what unites. In other words, this is not Rashi on Shas, very rarely Paskins, the halacha based on sugya A or B. Not his job. He's interpreting. Parshandata. Tosvot. Uh, not in every case, but in many, many cases, says, and therefore, because of our analysis, we decided the halacha is this way, that way, in this sugya, in the compar, in the compar, you know, the, the comparative sugya, um, as Rav Salavechik said, the Tosvot created the kosher kitchen because they brought all the sugyot in Avodah and in Chulun that deal with kashrus, and they did the dialectical scan and comparison, and so the results of what what you can do and what you can't do come down very nicely if you look at Tosfot. So these are really very to say they're multifaceted works is to understate it. So so we have the, the French, we have the German. Mm-hmm. What do we have beyond the French and the German? And, and are these works the product of? Um, an organized yeshiva network? Is that where it's coming out of? Okay, good good, good question. So first of all, just to say, and to sort of finish up the, the, the other question, um, things don't end with this with this creativity. In other words, and, and, you know, even though some of my colleagues like to think that the 13th century sort of they rested on their laurels, I don't think that's quite true either. There's activity going on. In other words, students beget students. So Re has students, Rashmi Shans has students, Students continue, and the students continue to work on what they receive from their predecessors. 
And not in all cases, but in many cases, they add. We then come to later collection of this material. So let me talk about that a little bit. Some of this is very understandable. For example, if you look at Northern France in the 13th century, one of the things that you'll find that you don't find so much in the 12th century are halachic works. Something called Sefer Hatruma by a student of the Re Baruch ben Yitzchak, who also made Aliyah. He probably died in root, unfortunately, in that same 1210 period. Um, that's basically the Re as a halachic work. He takes his teacher's comments, halachizes it, collation, which um, I don't like to quote the historian Toynbee for a lot of reasons, but Toynbee said, it's a Beferisha Toynbee, a period, Frestatorsky mentions this, Allah Shalom, in his rival book, a period of creativity is almost inevitably followed by a period of collection. So some of it is just organizing, you know, in different ways, what we did with the prior period. However, there is more than just organization in the 13th century. Again, it depends where. Now, um, we are dealing with relatively small Bate Midrash. For example, there's a famous, not a story, it's an account of the Rees Beit Midrash, which, to give it proper context and proper uh, sense, appears in a Spanish work of the mid-14th century, something called Tzedal um, Derech. Uh, uh, although the author says his father is from northern France, so there is some connection. So about 200 years, 150 years after all this was happening, comes this account that in Rees Beit Midrash, there were 60 students, 6-0. And 60 is the rough number of all the tractates in the Talmud, Mishnayot and Gemara, those of we don't have Gemara, right? And each student had memorized, literally memorized, cover to cover, top to bottom, one tractate. And so I'm going to paraphrase here when Re would say, we're learning today Masechet Megillah, I don't know, Masechet Rosh Hashanah, and we have the following text that says X, Y, Z. What do you say, Mr. Brachot? What do you say, Mr. Bav Metziah? What do you say, Mr. Zvachim? And that's how they managed to cover all that ground. They had these, you know, again, medieval memory is a whole interesting question. Human beings are the same. But today we have computers and things, so our memories get shot. They really remembered. And the ones who were best at that really remembered. And that's how they covered things. Now, we don't know 60 students of Re in his entire lifetime. So it's pretty clear that that number in this story, not, you know, a, a, a complete fable, it's so you know, hyperbole, it's a little bit exaggerated. Um, if Re had 20 students with him at one time, that's probably pretty good because the size of this, these yeshivot were small. They were located primarily in the teachers' houses um, and in the neighborhood. Um, and um, the other thing is you couldn't sit in these batemid rash unless you could, as we say in French, hold cup, unless you could produce with this level of material. You had to know all of Shino, you had to know everything. Uh, this was not for everyone. There's no public school system in the Middle Ages in this part of you know Jewish Europe and so on and so forth. So and they didn't have you know track one, track two, track three. It was a teacher and a relatively small number of students. Right. Um and uh, you know again 15, 20, yet to 25, but I think the lower numbers are more likely. Now the story of the 60 students at one time in front of Re some have suggested was exaggerated a drop to try to explain how did they cover so much stuff? And the answer is generation one uncovered what it uncovered, gave it to generation two. Now generation two doesn't have double the material. They have four times the material. It's geometric. And that's how the post seem to cover everything in such 
thorough fashion, although I should add, unlike Rashi, who doesn't comment on every word in the Gemara, but who goes line by line, the Tosafists are gloss, they write glosses, they pick and choose. They don't cover every single sugya fully, right? It's not Chidushim where they go line by line, I say this, I say that. They pick their spots. They pick a lot of spots. They're not finicky. But so that's how the Toso get produced in this Beit Midrash sort of turbo. And again, this then this so this is like a gathering snowball. By the time you get to post Rash Mishans and his colleague, somebody like you, the Sirleon of Paris, who dies in Paris in 1224, you've already got lots of texts, lots and lots of texts, and not completely dissimilar to the Talmud itself, right? Uh, uh, earlier and middle Amoroyim had their own Talmud copies before Ravina and Ravashi finally redacted it. That happens here too. And so as the 13th century progresses, even though there still is creativity, one of the things that happens is that you start to get collections of Tosfot, which really try to bring large bodies together, and sometimes bring different Batei Midrash together, bring layers. And so you get a layered effect. All right. So I, I started by saying Halachic works in France. Uh, Baruch Ben Yitzchak Sefer Truma is not so well known, even though it had a nice dissertation written about it by a very nice Israeli fellow, Yoshua Friedman. Anyway, um, it's getting more known. Um, uh, Sefer Mitzvot Gadol by Moshe of Kutzi, that we know. He's a Frenchman through and through. Now he also went to Spain and he's got interest in the Rambam, so he's a little bit unusual, but not too. Sefer Orzara. So you start to get halachic collections to try to pick up the gap, and you get Tosfot collections to pick up the gap. We can talk about sort of the three or four main ones, but here's the interesting thing. Rash Mishans, his Tosfot at the bottom, under the 20 mattresses of all the Tosfot, the PPEA at the bottom is Tosfot Rash Mishans. He's the nugget. Anything you get from him is wonderful, and things are then built up on that, and sometimes on some Masechot, we're lucky we have sort of the original Tosfot Rash Mishans that are longer, interesting, longer than the printed Tosfot. Notice the original version was longer, fuller, and they got, uh, I use the analogy of pressed wood. You have to put the generations together and it presses down. It's not crummy, you don't lose things, but you have to elide and you have to, which is why people who study Tosfot sometimes say, what's exactly the connection between line two and line three here? What happened here? And the answer can be, even though it's not always it's not always possible to forensically go line by line and say, oh, this is from there, this is from there. You're putting together the different Batei Midrash, you know, a little bit like the Gemara. One from, you know, 1189, one from 1221, one from, and so on. And we can identify whole strata, you know, stratum one, stratum two, and so on and so forth. Okay. Going back to, to the beginning a little bit, um, if, if there are scores of Tosafot, how many are Rashi's descendants? And it, it, it seems, uh, Professor, from what, what you're saying is that even if there wasn't Rashi, there would have been Tosafot. We kind of think Tosafot have to go with Rashi, but it sounds that it didn't have to go with Rashi. Well, Perhaps, you know, this is Hanis Darot Lashem Elokeinu, perhaps, except the Wissenschaft scholars, you know, Jewish scholars in the 19th century, very interesting critical study and so on, had a great um, description of Rashi. They call Rashi Maslula Talmud, a path through the Gemara. Had Rashi not made the path, somebody else might have, you know, we could alternate history. Who would it have been? Shoulda, coulda, woulda, mighta. 
And so as long as you have a path through, once you can get through the bush and get through the brush and clear, you know, uh, uh, you know, derech, you can then have this, you know, running with the ball. But the fact is that Rashi was not just, you know, good at it. He was the greatest at it. There were other Perushim, uh, so-called students of Ravenu Gershon and so on, that were not nearly as effective as Rashi. They were great, but they weren't as effective as Rashi. With Rashi, um, for his immediate descendants, like Rabbeinu Tam and Ri, I don't say it's a chip shot at all. They had to bring this new method. They had to, again, question how new the method is, where they got it from. There might have been pieces earlier, some interesting questions about possible Christian influence. I don't mean religious influence, but uh, intellectual influence and so on. Once they got the method, Rashi opened the book. So I, I can't tell you that without Rashi, there wouldn't have been Tosfot, but it probably would have taken a lot longer and it might not have been as finely done as it was done because, you know, jumping off of Rashi, which is why the Tosfot check Rashi's tzitzis too, because he becomes almost part of the Talmud. So that partnership is what gives them the ignition. Yes. Uh, as far as who's related, you know, smaller Jewish communities, everybody's related. It's like, you know, there are people like that, right? Everybody. Um, however, uh, and there are Yudas Ilyo, who I mentioned, who dies in twelve twenty four, is a descent, is 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 a familial relation of Rashi. Plenty who are, plenty who aren't, you know. But again, uh, it's the old story. Balatoso one, you know, his sister marries his buddy, his chavruta, you know. So it 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 there there's a certain amount of familial, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of intellectual aristocracy, but not in a in a in a stark way. You know, there were plenty of Balatoso who aren't related to anybody except the people they're related to, you know. So, uh, but it certainly it certainly has a lot to do with Rashi. Interesting, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, this is Machloket Hachokrim, the first Tosafist, you know, the George Washington, so to speak, the the David Ben Gurion. I don't know, pick your the first one of the Tosafists was actually a German named Yitzchak Ben Asher Halevi, Mitzpah Halevi of Shpira, who died in 1133. He's kind of a transitional figure, and we don't have a lot from him. So some scholars have taken the position. He wasn't the Rabbeinu Tam. And the answer is, how do you know? We've only got a tenth of the material. And that from that tenth, he looks like a Rabbeinu Tam. To make it even stronger, Rabbeinu Tam acquired a, a, a cohort, almost a clique of German students who had studied with Rivav Spira, who died fairly suddenly in 1133. There's an interesting story about that. It has to do with the fact that he was supposed to not eat on Yom Kippur, and he did, and therefore, and so on. It's a later source. But they all hightailed it. As soon as he was Nifter, they ran right to Rabbeinu Tam. You know, Matsamin Asmino, right? One, you know, if you're with Rivav Spira, the only person you go to after that is Rabbeinu Tam. If you're learning with, uh, I don't know who, you had to go from the Rav, you had to go to this one, you know, whoever it may be. So, um, so again, also, he's a connected person, so to speak, and he's learning and he's inspired. He perhaps was in Worms before, before the First Crusade. So everybody's got some level of connection, but it's not, it's not a, a, you know, a kind of an aristocracy. If you're not in the club, if you're not in the right, you know, the right last name, you can't get in. It's not that kind of thing at all. Okay. And and no Tosafot outside of Europe, none from the Islamic countries, Bavel, North Africa. Listen, Lo Karibul is that Tosafot. In other words, the name Tosafot right. is a fundamental. I mean, the word Tosafet, you know, that's when you go to a restaurant in Israel, they tell you what do you want for the Tosafet. You know, it can be right. So, um, I spend a lot of time in not in restaurant, but in Israel. Uh, <laughs> not a big restaurant man, but um, uh, uh. 
it's just it's the nomenclature. There are Tosfot. We do have a, a very interesting Italian Balha Tosfot named Rabbi Yeshaya Detrani, who dies around 1230 CE and probably studied in the Rhineland before that, where he learned some of Rabbeinu Tam's Torah from Rabbeinu Tam's students who went back to the Rhineland. He calls Rashi, interestingly, Hamoreh, the Rebbe, because he's not from, he's from Italy. So if you're from Northern France, right, you can talk about the Kuntras. They had notebooks. They had, you know, texts of Rashi that, again, his family, his closest students had these texts. They'll talk about sometimes French Tosa. We'll talk about Rabbeinu Shlomo. They don't talk about Rashi too much. German, there are very few German Tosa printed in the Shas. One of the best examples in our printed Shas is Masachet Sota, where they keep quoting Parish Rashi. Now, not that other Tosa would never do that, but again, if you think about it, it's either the Kuntras or who's Rashi? I mean, it, that name, that, that acronym is a little bit late in coming. The Germans are not as close to Rashi. They're, they're, they're very close in learning, but they're not, they're not coming from the same... Um, you know, Ursprung. So they talk about Pirish Rashi. The Rid talks about the Moreh in his Pirish Achumish too, the Rebbe. And he's a, he's a big Rashi fan, even though part of his calling card is he agrees with no one. If it doesn't work well in the Gemara, he'll disagree with anybody. He disagrees with Rashi, but he's still the Rebbe. So um, we have an we have Italian Tosfot. There might be others. Um, Provence and Spain consume Tosfot. In other words, let me explain what I mean by that. Ramban, anybody who knows Chedusha Ramban knows that Ramban quotes Chachmei Sarfat every four long, you know, every every four pieces, every two pieces, every one piece. As much as Ramban is Sfaradi Tahor, and he's working with the Rambam, and he's working with the Gaonim, in his Chidush Manshas, he quotes a, a considerable amount, let's put it mildly, of Tosfot. Doesn't always agree with them in Halach, in fact, often disagrees, but their analysis is at the root of also his conceptual system, which is beyond Tosfot in terms of the conceptualization. That's a whole different discussion. Quotes a ton of Tosfot, a ton. And from there to his student, the Rashboa, and from there to his student, who quotes even more, because he's got new stuff coming in, the Ritva, and so on. So these Chachmei Sfarah, the Chidushay, I'm going to say this very carefully, nobody should get upset. Chidushay Ramban, Rashboa, Ritva, would be half of what they are without Tosfot. And that's not a But they're not writing Tosfot. They're they, they may they may disagree with Tosfot. They may analyze That's how it sort of develops. And the prior stage was the northern French material came down to southern France. That's how the Ramban got it because he had Rebbeim who either went to northern France to learn from Provence and so on. So the stuff moves very quickly southbound. The Balhamor and the Ravid both love Rabbeinu Tam. And um, at one point, the, the, the Rivas the Balhamor, you are Zanavlat Sarfativ, you're too French, you're too Northern French, they, right? You're hanging around for being a time too much. That should be the worst problem. So this stuff is a revolution, and it then gets carried, cultural transference, agents of culture, by individuals, by books, and so on. But the Tosfot locus is, is again, I don't, I don't know if anybody, there, there were Spanish Shasin that were either copied or printed with Ramban instead of Tosfot, but they didn't call it Tosfot, they called it Ramban. There are a couple of those. Okay. Um, Professor Chaim Soloveitchik uh, might have alluded to this already, uh, describes the focus of the Tosfot dialectics as collation, contradiction, and distinction. What does that mean? Yeah, just a nice way to say it, but I think it's very basic as follows. Uh, again, I would say first step with all uh, 
studied with Professor Salvatic as well when I was a kid. Anyway, um, <laughs> and, and I have my doctorate is from his doctor, Father Yaakov Katz in New York. I, I'm a Katzler from okay. 100 years ago, the great Professor Katz. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, um, the first thing again is close reading. Before you start, you know, throwing the, throwing the thumbs, close reading. The collation, again, collatio, by the way, some of this is based on Christian, medieval Christian learning, which is fine here, right? Lectio to read, collatio to bring together, right? Collation. Now, collatio doesn't mean to find all the contradictions. It means to just get everything, get everything on the table that needs to be on the table. You then go to, well, what does that collation reveal? Is everybody voting the same way or do we have Sugya A voting you know, Republican and so you'd be voting Democrat, Lahavdil, right? If there are contradictions, and there are, the assumption of the Tos vote is that Ravina Ravashi produced a unified Shas, Mitzvali Yashev, right? In other words, unless there's an impossibility, and sometimes Tos vote says, Midrashim Chalukim, you know, Sugyot Chalukot, never the twain will meet. But 99% of the time, they come out with what he's calling distinction. In other words, dialectic as a concept presumes that the contradictions are resolvable, right? You have two, if not opposite, conflicting propositions. You create a circle, not in a you know silly way, but you create a structure into which both propositions fit. This one is covering case A or concept A. This one is covering variation B. So the fact that one sugya seems to say chayav, one sugya seems to say patur, and it's all talking about the same shomrim, no, but it depends. How was the shvira established? How was the, the, the arrangement, you know, canceled and so on? So that's what Tosfot does. So read it, bring it together. Um, uh, by the way, in the Christian terms, lectio, uh, uh, colatio, uh, and then you get to disputatio. That sounds like the... What's happening in Israel? Anyway, never mind that. Uh, we're having a uh, you know a little little discussion there. So that's what well, they're a doing. A small dispute. A small dispute. A small dispute. Yeah, a little minor. Right. The answer is that Tosfot usually can figure it out. I don't know if we're we're a little not so well today. But but again, and they will not just figure it out in gross terms. They will work out all of the moving pieces. Right. There are four sugyus. So the one that does it this way will say, "Here's how we do one. Here's what." In other words, it's a very organized resolution. That's the whole point. And that's what the, that's what he means to say, I think, by distinctions. Not distinctions that we're left with problems. How do we fit all the moving parts into one lovely solution? Um, Marshal, uh, who lived in the 16th century, one of our early Achronim, who was a big connoisseur of Tosfot, not that he needs my approval. He knew about different versions and different tractates. He's got a lot to say about that. In the introduction to Yom Shashlomo, he, his two favorite Sfarim are the Rambam, because he gets everything together seamlessly. And on the other hand, in almost the opposite direction, right, are the Tosfot, Sha'asuet HaTalmud L'Kadur Echad. The Rambam gets everything together, but the Rambam will mow down sugis. If there are two sugis, one says Chayev, one says Potter, the Rambam will say, we paskin like the Chayev the, the sugis. How do I know? Yerushalmi Tosefta, I know. He's got, you know, he basically says, let that one go, keep this one, which was the Gaonic method as well. Tosfot says Marshal makes the Talmud kikadur echad, a spheroid. Hafhu v'gilgaluhu. You know, it's like a, a matzah ball. It goes around and around and around. And there's no, there are no, no sharp corners. Everything comes together, not in their work. They can say different things, but in the Talmud. Right? So those are your two options. You can either say Talmud has two possibilities, 
I know to pick sugya one. I know this is the sugya lahalacha. One, and there are other ways to do it. That's the Rambam's way to do it. I'm saying this very broadly. Gaonic way to do it. Tosfot uh, says, make it all a very smooth, it all, it's one big happy Talmud here. So that's, that's how they, that, and that's what Presalavechik is ultimately says distinctions. Yes, there are distinctions, but here's how we handle them. In other words, here's how all the distinctions are smooth. Now, once in a while, again, Tosfot says, this doesn't fit. Uh, rarely. Uh, once in a while, Tosfot says, very rarely, we don't get this Gemara. There's something wrong here. Very rarely. Oh, Visham. Professor Orbach has these things in his magisterial work, Baliat Tosfot. But that's so uncommon, you'll almost never find it. Generally speaking, they managed to get us through in this way. What are the Tosfot uh, Tuch? Uh, and what was Eliezer Tuch's role in editing them? Okay. So this brings us to these Tosfot collections, right? Again, by the time you get to the mid-13th century, you've got layers and layers and layers of Tosfot on different tractates. Some of them do go with each other. Some of them are separate. And so you get a series of figures in the, again, Rashmi Shans has edited the earlier material, and Ruda Sirleon has edited, these students of Re have edited some of the early edited, redacted, put together some of the early material. But by the time you get to the mid and mid to late 13th century, the last part of this period, you really need um, massive, you know, organizing. And there are several figures who do this. Perhaps the most famous in some respects is Rabbi Lazami Tuch. Interesting machloket between Professor Urbach, Alav Hashalom, and others is Tuch. It's a funny name, spelled usually with a tet, except in those medieval sources that's spelled with a taf, right? Um, is it Turheim in Germany, a German town? We're not sure exactly, but we know we think we know approximately where it is. Or is it Tuchs, some kind of French settlement? The reason that question comes up is because Rebeliezami Tuch worked mostly with Tosot Rabbeinu Tamri Rashmi Shans. It's organizing and cutting down, fitting in the earlier material with a little bit of later material. The other reason we like Tosfot Tuch is because, as fate would have it, his Tosfot were the ones that lead the league, more or less, in terms of what appears in our printed Talmud. In other words, his editing job or his redacting job was good enough, so good, that, you know, again, that begs the question, how do we know what Tosot we have and why? And the why sometimes is because that's the manuscript that was available. Very hard to know in exact science. But as it turns out, his fingerprints are all over our printed Tosfot. Again, you, it's, it, he mostly worked. He didn't work with 13th century material. He had his own notes that were put into what he called Gilio Note. He made footnotes for his own stuff. I had a doctoral student, uh, actually, he's a Skan Menachelet Shalavim, Ari Libus, did a wonderful dissertation on Lazmituch, where he separate, he showed what he put in the Tosfot, what he put in the Gilyono, very nice job. But he basically brings all that earlier material together and shortens and, and, and edits, which is good and bad. The good news is it fits on the page, or the page fits on it. The not as good news is you have to make choices. You have to make snips. You have to make edits. And even if you're a brilliant editor, you know, we'd be better off if we had every word of the earlier material. We don't always have that. And that's why sometimes it looks like a little, little choppy. So he's perhaps the most popular or the most productive editor of this type. But there are others. Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, the Rosh, 
who people might know his biography a little bit. He's a student of Maharam, again, late 13th century Germany, not a place you want to be. The rush, while his Rebbe's body is still in jail in 1303-4, leaves Germany, goes through France, northern, southern, down, ultimately down to Spain. The Rashboa directs him to Toledo, where he settles. And already in Germany, he produced what we call Tosfot Harosh. Tosfot Harosh are his take on Tosfot Shantz, again with addenda from his Rebbe, from the Rambam, printed Tosfot hardly ever quote the Rambam. He quotes the Rambam, he quotes the Rivet, he went through southern France and so on and so forth. Interestingly, not one of the printed Tosfot that we have to any Masechta are Tosfot Arash. We have 20 Masechtas of it. He did a great job. 20 is, you know, two-thirds of the extant Talmudic uh, Masechtot, but those did not make it into the printed edition. Uh, again, not everybody had them through the centuries. By now, we've had most of them published from the They're very helpful. The reason they're very helpful is he basically starts the Tosfot Shans. Those are the clearest. And he doesn't do the same kind of heavy editing as Leazim Ituch. So Yeshiva Bachram and Benot Yeshiva will all tell you, you're having trouble with a Tosfot? Get the Tosfot Harash. Because it's a little bit earlier stuff, a little bigger, a little clearer, less cutting. But again, on the other hand, printed Tosfot don't include Tosfot Harash. They do include Tosfot Tuch. There are others. So Tosfot Tuch, in addition to editing, we have his original commentary as well. Well, we, we have we have his notes, if you will. We have his further chidushim. He studied with people in both northern France and Germany in the mid-13th century. We have some of that. But that he segregates so as not to confuse things, which is helpful. Povisham, those things appear in the printed Tosfot, but usually not. Povisham, you'll see, you know, things from under the line, so to speak. Um, I want to mention one more name. My candidate for French editor of the whatever is Rabbeinu Peretz of Corbet. Again, late 13th century, a little older than the Rosh, around the time of Velazimituch, um, who's a student of a very interesting Beit Midrash at Evreux. Evreux in Normandy actually is responsible for our Tosfot to Kiddushin. Um, those who learn Kiddushin say, wait, they quote the Ram all the time. The Ram isn't the Rambam. The Ram isn't the Marami Rittenberg. It's from Moshe of Evro. It's uh, this particular Tosfist who studied with um, uh, uh, Um They're very interesting Tosfotis, Tosfot. Rabbeinu Peretz was their student, as was the Rabbi of Corbe, the author of the Sefer Mitzvot Katan, on which Rabbeinu Peretz also commented. Anyway, Rabbeinu Peretz, between Tosfot Evro and Tosfot Rabbeinu Peretz, uh, Almost as many, I think, of our printed Tosfot that are Tuch are Evro Peretz. So they need a new look. I mean, they've had a look, but they, I'm going to give them one. They need a new look um, because, again, they are uh, Rabbeinu Peretz, I, I would say. He was also a colleague of Maharam. He was he considered Maharam his teacher, even though he's in France, he's in Germany. But they they met, they, 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 they communicated. Rabbeinu Peretz and Evro are very creative. There's new stuff there. They're not, they're not changing the way Tosfot does business. Uh, they're doing business like the older Tosfot, but they've got a lot of new material. So you've got these three or four um, collections. Again, Tuch, Rosh, Peretz, and there were some others. But those and, the are re, and the Re? The Re, again, wrote some of his own or his students. Rashmi Shantz is his writer. He's his body man. He's his... He's his Boswell, you know, he's writing up the stuff. So the Re was Zoha to this great Talmud who whatever he didn't write, 
he wrote. By the way, big question. Tosfot Re, were they written by Re? Were they written up by the Rosh Mishans? Did the Re go over them? Did the Re not go over them? You know, like Robin Lichtstein's at Sal. Mugal, they are a Shiva, low Mugal, right? Um, you know, they put out all the notes. You know, he did look at it. He didn't look. Um, did it, and the answer to that question is yes. We don't know. <laughs> In other words, any of those possibilities are possible. So Re is obviously the central figure. He, he and Rabbeinu Tam get the most hits. Right on every page of Tosfot, if you don't see a Ri or a Benu Tam, you, you you may send it back to the printer. You know something's wrong. But um, who wrote those down? So the bucks stop with Rosh Mishans, but between all of them, a lot of his Torah is there. Interesting, by the way, in the case of Ri, um, two people, uh, two of my colleagues, uh, one at Barilan and one at Ben Gurion, put out not so long ago Chuvot Hari. The Ri also wrote a lot of Psakimu Chuvot. They don't appear in Tosfot. Sometimes they're alluded to. So something, if you look at the manuscripts, there's always something extra we can find. That's the other thing about this. Whenever you think Mitsinu, Mitsinu, Lo Mitsinu, there's more. I, again, the fact is that by now, because Tosfot is so popular, whether it's, you know, scholarly groups or or Lumdisha groups or whoever, most of the manuscripts of Tosfot, X, Y, and Z have been published, but there are all these ancillary pieces that if you want to study the Balayat Tosfot, I once went to one of my seminars in Tosfot, you're probably going to notice that most of the texts in the text in the packet are not Tosfot on Shas, they are Sifrei Halacha, they're Chidushit, they're this, because again, a lot of it ends up falling into the these other literary vehicles, but it's still Tosfot material. It's material of Balayat Tosfot, Asur Lahaniach. You've got you've to put it together. So when is the first Talmud printed? Who makes the decision? What yeah. to put in? Who accepts so, that? And does that change as so, new editions so are printed? So this is a complicated story that I know a little bit less about. My life is manuscripts. Uh... I just said goodbye to the old Sifriyalu Mit two weeks ago, and I'm going to be again in November at the new Sifriyalu Mit because without those manuscripts, I can't work. Um, and I, I want to say about the manuscripts before we talk about printed, one of the interesting things about the manuscripts, we don't have that many early Tosfot manuscripts. In other words, and on some Masechtas, how many manuscripts of Tosfot do we have? One. There are even a couple for which we have none. But they were so popular, they survived. So even if you, you know, and, and if you look through, uh, um, there's a very wonderful list. Tashba had a Sefer Zikaron where uh, Benjamin Richler, who worked many years at the Machalans at Slumi Kitveyad, put out an article on Tosfot in Kitveyad. You look, a lot of the Tosfot that we have, the earliest, the earliest manuscript is 15th century. That's pretty late. Summer 14th, right? I mean, the earliest medieval Ashkenazic Kalachic works. It's not like the Geniza, the earliest works all late 12th century, early 13th century, even Rashi and Chumash, you can hardly get anything before 1180, according to some, and the best one is 1233 and all of that stuff. So a lot of these manuscripts are late, um, or they're in Taviyat Sfaradi, nothing wrong with that, hard to read, but nothing wrong with that. Again, so it's obviously a derivative. So then the question becomes, well, how do we know these are the Tosfot? And the answer is because everybody had them. And, you know, people like the Trumat Hadeshen or the Marshal later or the Marik will say, oh, yeah, that's the real one. That that That's our Tosfot. That's ours. They're not working academically. They're just working with they want to have the right text. So th- there's not a crisis of faith in terms of the authenticity of the text per se, um, even though the manuscript bases are not as 
rich as we might like. You know, you'd like to have, oh, don't we have six manuscripts on each Masech that we can compare? No. <laughs> um, same problem with Rashi on Shas, where there have been some very interesting critical editions of Rashi that they did at Barilan years ago, and I hope they do some more. Um, but then we come to the printing phase, and it gets more complicated. Uh, and again, I'm not as into this as I am into the manuscripts, and I'd recommend material, especially by, I'll say something anyway, but uh, Marvin Heller has some really good stuff on the printing of the Talmud. You also have the fellow, um, oh, uh, Yaakov Meyer, who's working on t- Talmud manuscripts, but he's working also on the development of the printed Talmud, doing terrific work. Um, the problem is, I mean, I, I, I had one one teacher who once said, the printed Tosfot are the ones, the cheapest manuscripts. <laughs> I don't think he's exactly right, but he's not far off. In other words, Mashi Gili Adam, they print it. And again, Jewish printers, non-Jewish printers, advisors. So some of it was helter-skelter. Now, so you'll tell me, so maybe our Tosfot are junk, God forbid. Again, the answer is there were enough Lomdim who had learned Tosfot even before printing, right? In some copied forms. There are people who, you know, you could still meet a few today, not as many as you used to meet, who can tell you, you know, Rashi and Tosfot, Oisevenig, you know, Balpe, up and down the pages, and they would tell you, yes, no, maybe, right? The same way the Bach goes, puts in this word, takes out that word. He's got it all. He's not sitting with 50 manuscripts. He's sitting with his head and things that he knows. So the good news is this: there's nobody who thinks the Tosfot on Masechet X are Mizuyafim. There's no, there's no such, as far as I know. There's Besamim Rosh, which is a tribute to the Rosh, Chuvot, which may be Mizuyafim, even though Rabbi Kivar quotes from Halacha, but anyway, we won't go into that now. Uh, there are famous Yafim. Tosfot is not among them. Having said that, uh, it behooves us, but as I say, I think it's actually been done to a large extent to make sure that everything that we have in manuscript is reviewed. And by the way, to ascertain the proper text of Tosfot, it's not sufficient to look at all the manuscripts of Tosfot or all the printed, early printed editions in Canubula, all that stuff. You also have to look at other Tosafist works which contain Tosfot. There's one, somebody once they asked me something about a Tosfot in Erevin, and I said to them, oh, yeah, you got to look here in the Or Zarua. Uh, he's got a better version. I said, the Or Zarua is a Sefer Halacha. I said, no, no, no. He's got a whole piece of Tosfot Rosh Mishans that he got when he was in Paris. He stuck him into the Sefer Or Zarua. You want to know the best Tosfot text? And sure enough, on that particular passage, very interesting about how many mezuzahs you need, what rooms, and so on. Mem Aleph, Mem Gimel, somewhere. Mem um, Aleph, um, um, uh, Mem Anyway, I'm forgetting. Um, uh, much longer version, much more specifics in that Orzarua. So the good news is we, we generally have true Tosfot. Again, they're complicated by the fact that that uh, Tuch's, uh, you know, uh, pressed wood sometimes elides some of the connections, but he's really dealing with early material. He's got his re and his Rashmi Shantan, his Rabbeinu Tam. Um, but, um, um, but, but, so we don't always have the original version exactly, but there's very little. There's, you know, um, you know, the famous Tosfot Ketubot on Daf Kufiud, where where Tosfot says, Chaim um, says that no mitzvah right? And he goes, Ah, Talmud yeah, yeah, fine. I can find just six other texts where he says exactly that in other contexts, say from Mordechai, and there's a whole machloket between French and German scholars, rabbinic scholars of that period, on this very point. So 
again, not not that not that we can't argue the merits of the position, but it's it's. Rabbi Tom says in one place in Tosfat of Zara about uh, touching non-Jewish wine and what that does in terms of Jews doing business with it. Oh yeah, the Talmud who wrote that Tosfat, the Talmud who copied it, I'm going to say it my way, wasn't ready for prime time. You know, that line, changed that line. So there are things that Povisham have to be fixed, but I don't think we have crisis of faith or crisis of halacha or crisis of substance that our Tosfat or somehow Mizuyafim or we've got incomplete like I say, if you can get earlier toast vote, they're usually um, fuller, uh, more informative. No no sin in that, right? If you want to learn the toast vote with the toast vote rush and know more and impress your Rebbe, I'm sure he'll be impressed. You know, <laughs> right? By the way, the toast vote harosh, it's been noticed by Lam Danim, same as toast vote that Ramban cites. Because he's working off Tosfot Shantz. He's a smart man. He used early Tosfot. He knew he had this early material. He was working with the original thing. So I guess what I'm saying is the Tosfot has pretty good checks and balances. Again, it's a dirty word today, but pretty good checks and balances within itself. You know, it's hard to fool the whole complex. An individual might say, but if you look, survey the literature properly, not hard to pinpoint. So the printing issue is an issue, but I think it's not a, a fatal one. Okay. Um, were Tosafot manuscripts found in the Cairo Geniza? Where, uh, where, where, where are these manuscripts? And what are you looking at when you go come after the, yes. the holidays so, to, to the university and sit and look at manuscripts? What, what are you looking right. at? Right. So, so first of all, right. So um, there are some Tosfot that, that made it to the Karaganiza. There are interesting Perushim on Shas that are Rashi-esque that they didn't have in Ashkenaz. And uh, someone theorized very nicely, Rashi was so great. These are Rashi-like. You know, if you got Rashi, throw the other ones out. <laughs> Send them over to the Geniza. It's not that simple, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, look, there were also Tosafists who made Aliyah and who brought material or who traveled. Uh, a colleague and I published a text years ago from Yosef uh, um, Yishu um, um, as he's called in Tosot, Yosef of Clisson, a young student of Ri on Tefillin, on whether he paskin like Rashi, Rabbeinu Tam, and so on. And um, uh, it was identified by a paleographer in Israel as Ketaviyad Ashkenazi, might be an autograph, landed up in the Karaganiza because he was in Israel. So these texts can move, that's not surprising. Um, um, the the uh, Basically, uh, any library anywhere in the world, uh, primarily Europe, we're not really, Europe, Russia, uh, there were no Jewish Kitveyat as far as I know in China, I mean, not from the medieval period in China or in uh, even, well, I'm not Australia, but certainly most of them are European in their origin. Um, any library could have had pieces of Tosfot. Uh, they're also doing a lot with book bindings now. Right, little, you know, um, somebody thought that we had found a couple of pages from a Rashi to Masachas Nazir that we don't have Rashi on, stuck into a book binding to keep it concave, right? Turned out it was a false alarm, but everybody's all excited about that. So over the years, I mean, this is, you know, I could give you a separate talk on the Mahon Tatsume Kitveya that Professor Tashma headed for decades and that others headed before him. Really a, a great contribution to Medinat Israel, besides everything else. Um, where they went and they microfilmed anything that they could get their hands on. And then it took 
people a number of years to go through all the stuff and find out by now that fact-finding mission has gone so well that as I say whether scholars or Lamdanim or Hasidim or Mitnagdim or you name it have pretty much put their fingers on almost every piece of Tosfot you could imagine. Now, obviously, I mean, you could publish a fragment of two pages. That would be a little article somewhere. But the big pieces, a lot of them have been published. However, Lomitzino, I don't expect, I mean, you know, I go there always assuming I'm going to be finding the, you know, Taglit Lamisham, but it doesn't always work that way. Um, 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 you can always find, though, pieces and um, I have an article, for example, coming out on something called Tosfot Shita. Was heist Mazet Tosfot Shita? So the Chida, the great bibliographer, died in 1806, who saw every manuscript of... He, he was a shliach Eretz Israel to Europe. And while he was busy doing what he had to do in his spare time of none, he looked at every caveat he could get his eyes on. He also remembered every caveat he could get his eyes on. And he talks about Tosfot Shita. He says that's a way of saying not Tosfot Shantz. He's got, anyway, uh, I, I have this article coming out, and I think it's just because he couldn't see every manuscript in the world. And my mazel, I found one that he didn't see. Uh, beginner's luck, you know, dumb luck. Um, it refers to a certain group of 13th century Tosafists. There's a whole new, there's a new category. Now, we'll see if people buy it. They may disagree. Uh, it has to do a lot with the Marik, has to do other things. So we're looking to see how now to flesh out and how to, um, uh, uh, you know, expand this corpus. When I go, I'm typically going for my own projects, but that's the point. You could be working on any of the books that you just mentioned of mine, that you mentioned a while back already of mine. And um, in the course of doing those books, I found all, all these other things. In other words, once you go through Kitayad, the main misima is to read. You can't read randomly, but if you're reading Ashkenazi Kitvayad, and, you know, so the first problem is you have to have a pretty good idea of what we have. You have to have a pretty good idea of what we don't have, and you have to have an idea of what you think you have that we don't have. Sometimes it turns out you're 100% right, and you get an extra helping of dessert, and sometimes you turns out you were dead wrong. We know that already, and you get no dessert. But that's the that's the thrill of victory and the not agony of defeat because there's no defeat here that's the less of a thrill to know oh we have that but again the connections are very interesting so it's basically all and that's that's how we were trained and that's by the way what Bechirei Chokrei Eretz Israel did for decades and it's interesting because the Sifrialu Mit new model has almost everything digitized and not that they don't want you to come to look at the Kitvayad on but you know, you can do it in your house except for the 15% or 10% that are not digitized. And it's always that one that has the best stuff. So so this is, it's all about, you know, mazel shall say for Torah. You have to try to figure it out. So I go, so for example, I used to go working on some of these topics, the Sefer Mordechai, which is a Likut, a late 13th century collection, French, German, Tosfot, Halacha. It's a grab bag. Found in the printed shas at the very, very back. And if you've ever seen a Sefer Mordechai, it's a tunatrachim sham, you know, intellectuality. It's just it's a mess. They've got parentheses, brackets, things you can't read. You go to the Kitvayad, get some good ones, get the 10 best Kitvayad. You're a smart person, you know a lot more. So I used to have to go, if I was working on something that I wanted to look at a Mordechai, I would bring my list of 10 Kitvayad. I'd say, okay, let's check. Now, Machon Yerushalayim has put out an edition of, say, from Mordechai on everything. They had 
Now, the problem is they don't go through all 10. They go through about six. Not bad. So again, you get to, but that's, that's the kind of intensive labor that, that, you know, people say to me all the time, you come to Israel for four days and you sit in the library the entire four days. What are you doing? I said, I'm, you know, shining my shoes. But it's it's very labor intensive, but if you don't do it that way, it's not going to get done. But I encourage people who are interested, you have to get your feet wet in this kind of uh, in this kind of business. That's what my Dr. Antum do. Not all of them, but that's what some of them do, the ones with whom I'm luckiest. I once asked Professor Idel, who did his whole thing based on Kitvayad, do you make all the Dr. Antum use the Kitvayad? He said, listen, I tell them they should. They're adults. They decide. Those who do we think do the best work, but again, it's, it's, but it's, 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 it doesn't always work because you can go through 10 Kitveyad and find nothing, but the 11th one, oh, would the bar. So uh, I will sometimes call my wife after a day in the library and I will say, she will say, how was the day? I will say, one of those, one of those means if you told me to get on the plane, fly Yerushalayim, spend one day in the library and then turn around and come home, I would do it. So, you know, every trip there's always one day like that, Baruch Hashem. Anyway, but that's something yeah. I'm going on. Just, just in conclusion, um, my my youngest, my Ben Zakunin, um, who I, I told him he must listen to this interview, but I'm going to tell him to listen up to this point because they'll be upset at me for mentioning him at all. <laughs> so so he, he, he is a 12th grader and, and he is, I mean, he's immersed in in his Gemara learning, in the Sugi, he gets very deep into it. Uh, non-academically, what advice would you give to Tosvot learners, to Talmud learners, how to approach a Tosvot in a non-academic way, obviously? Right. Right. So I think what I would say, and it's interesting, I was just discussing it with with a seminar of Dr. Antum last night. If you spend all your time doing some of the things I'm talking about, you, you won't learn too much. It'll take too much time. Part of the trick is you know, which did you do first? How much did you do it? You know, bring it all together. Look, I sat with Rav Soloveitchik for years. Rav Soloveitchik was a Roshonophile of the highest order. Not that he didn't care about the Echronim. He knew all them by heart, too. He knew all the Ketos. He knew all the uh, Shagas. He knew everything. But he focused us on Rishonim. So already at a young age, and all his students were my teachers over the years. So you already have an Etiyalizet. What I would tell Yeshiva people, people who are studying seriously, don't worry about the kitvayad. Again, do use the quote-unquote scholarly resources that are easily available. For example, a lot of times you're working on a sugi and tosfis, get the ritva on that sugi, go into the most of cook footnotes. They'll tell you things you didn't know that you didn't know from tosfot that will help you learn that tosfot because the ritva knows tosfot great. In other words, use every critical edition that you just, I don't mean everyone, but use, you'll learn which are the most helpful. As far as learning itself though, Think about who says it. How do we know he said it? Let's think about layers, right? Think about, uh, 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 you know, is this all, Tosfot is not Miro Echad, right? If you find a steer in the Rambam, you can immediately make a big shtickle Torah. If you find a steer in Tosfot, the Marsh already said, stay calm. The Machlok, it's a little stira, right? There are two different opinions. And there is value in knowing a little bit of the history, not because I'm just a mafunic, I want you to know dates and numbers and names and places, but because then you can make decisions about the learning. I'll give you an interesting example. Um, there was a, um, many examples, I'll give you an interesting example. Tosavot Avodah Zara has several layers. 
first layer is actually Ri's son, Rebbe Hanan ben Hari, who was killed by Kiddush Hashem in 1182-84. So he produced Tosfot around 1180. That's sort of the first take. We have them. There's a nice edition that was put out in Israel in 2005. It used to be in this Chinese print. Now it's a lovely thing with footnotes. It's good. Someone named Kreuzer. Um, the second layer is um, uh, uh, there is a Rashmi Shans as well. There is a Rebuta Sirleon kind of a layer. There's a Rabshomi Falez and there's a Rabbeinu Peretz. Sometimes the layers don't cohere. For example, rare, Tosfot Yudal Amad Bet, actually there's an article coming out on this now, but it's already been telegraphed. Tosfot Yudal Amad Bet in Avodah Zara talks about um, uh, what, what uh, uh, financial benefit can Jews, can they trade, can they use as pawns, um, uh, church garments, things like that, priestly garments of the church and so on and so forth. The, the, um, um, the chalice, you know, that kind of thing. Very machmir in Tosot Yudalam and Bet. And they mentioned some name Baruch Ben Reb, and there's no father's name there. Probably sends it out. Machmir. And Dafnun, Tosot of Azar quotes Rashi, Rashbam, the Re is working it. Much more Lakula. Now you'll say, well, if it was edited, redacted, didn't they catch the stira? No. And it reflects two, you can't catch everything. And it reflects two completely different schools in the Balei HaTosot. There's a school Humra, a school Kula, and it explains everything, and you can buttress it with Sefer Yireim or Rebbe Metz, you can buttress it with Sefer Atruma Baruch of Yitzchak, who's the, 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 the missing Baruch Ben Yitzchak there, and the learning goes great. Without that, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's like, what? What do we do? That's a rare find. On the other hand, Tosfot and Davchav talks about a woman being a mohelet, a sugi there, right? A non-Jew can never be a mohel because he doesn't have a bris and he's not required to have a bris. Gemara raised the possibility based on psukim about a woman being a mohelet. Never mind Sipora, but just that, right? Machlok and Rishonim, Rambam, Geonim, Paskin, a woman can be a mohelet if no uh, better qualified male is available, and she can, she can fill in, and if she's more qualified, take her, right? You have the woman surgeon, take her. Amongst Rishonim Ashkenaz, Machloket, there are some who are very makeable. There were some who say outright that Minhadin, a woman can be a Mohelet Beit. It's a Machloket, Rav Yochan and Rav, they are in the Sugya. Paskin like uh, Rav Yochan, everything's fine. However, Tosfot, a little, little tiny Tosfot says, no, we Paskin like Rav. And we Paskin like, because normally we Paskin like Rav, Yochan against Rav. We Paskin like Rav because there's a bright at the top of the page that, that forces the hand of the Gemara. Okay. So there's a wonderful article, I won't say by who, Choker Chashuv Mamish Great, where he wrote about the fact that in Smog, the, there seemed to be Tish Tushim, where they try to fabester the Smog. First, the Smog said it was mutter for a woman to be a Mohelet, and then as the Smog editions progressed, it starts saying the Smog Paskins, it's awesome. So never mind that we know now that the Smog wrote multiple versions of, say, from it's called, at least two, maybe three, maybe change his mind, leave that alone. But there's a problem here. In other words, so basically the claim is at the end of the 13th century, right, um, uh, Rabbeinu Peretz, Tosa Rabbeinu Peretz, they decide to be Machmir, you know, from Kite, they decide to be Machmir again. The problem is what nobody seemed to know, well, people noticed it, but they didn't know what to do with it. Tosot Rabbeinu Hanan is Machmir, Tosot Rashmi Shans is Machmir, other Tosot pieces of Machmir. So in other words, this was not a, a variable issue where until the late 13th century, everybody was makil, and then suddenly they're machmir. 
this is an ongoing kind of an issue. So any claim that they change their minds, not that you can't change your mind, but it's just not true because you've got a rats of a Tosafist text. Again, Orbach says Tosafist uh, uh, Rebbe Hona was composed in 1182 before his death, right? Great, I, I accept. So between 1182 and 1282, you've got a whole rock solid she told Hatos, you know, she she told Malaya Tosfot. So people again in learning can get all excited. Well, but from here, or in scholarship. It's completely incorrect because you have no idea of the forensics. So I'm not suggesting that people become forensic Tosfot accountants. I will give one uh, a very practical Aitza. Urbach's chapter, chapter 13 in Balaya Tosfot, called Hatosfot Shalanu. Nothing to do with Mayim Shalanu, right? Uh, our printed Tosfot. He goes through Masechta after Masechta by forensics, you know, proving who they quote, what are the layers. It's worth a read. It's like two pages per Masechta. I think it takes about 60 pages to do the whole thing. You know, 30, it's maybe 70. Um, you at least get an idea, and that will prevent you from barking up a wrong Tosfot tree. Now I'll tell you that uh, on Brachot, Orbach has this big Einfall, and that again, Yeshiva Bachram know too, because people, you know, know enough about this. Toso Brachot is Tosos for you to Leon, good. But it was written by Nashkin Hazi, says Orbach, because on Yudalaf and Beis in Birkat HaTorah, he first to the Hanagot of the Tzor Fatim regarding Birkat HaTorah in the morning. And therefore he invents a German student, doesn't say who he is, doesn't prove it, who was a student of Reb Moshe Mievro, who's the last Tosafist mentioned, and maybe mentioned in that Tosafist, the latest Tosafist mentioned. He was his student, but not his close student. He got a whole, he invents a, he invents a German. Right? Um, I think the whole thing is incorrect, and it's not my Hiddish. Yudin Epstein, 1939, was never published until 1980-something, decided that Tosafist Brachot or Rabbeinu Peretz. If Tosafist Brachot or Rabbeinu Peretz um, uh, he's Raboshim Evro's student, Rabbeinu Peretz, who's French, nonetheless writes on Maharam's uh, Tashbet. He refers to Tzorfatim Ashkenazim. He's an equal opportunity geographic cider. Make a long story short, if it's Rabbeinu Peretz, the whole Kasha goes away. There's no German Bachar Azetz. So again, it's not going to affect Lomdis, but the whole thing goes, eh, I'm writing it now. It's fine. But, uh, and again, Professor Orbach is there to scream at me. So, you know, it's the old story. I hope when I meet these people, they will think that I haven't lost my mind. And you you are pretty good. You know, like the Ramar of Chaim joke, not bad, but you got a couple of things wrong. I hope it'll be like that. Um, you know, and I won't have the Ramar's response because only he can make his response to that joke. But in any case, um, this will help learning. If you know who's who, it just, it just, there's a Rabbeinu Tam mentioned there uh, about Birkus Torah. If you wake up in the middle of the night, so la Rabbeinu Tam, so Reish Mem, it's Reb Moshe Mevro. In other words, uh, if you if you want to fake a name, right, you don't know who this Reb Moshe is. I don't mean fake. Sometimes he gets called Rabbeinu Hananel, Reish Chet, Yoter Mistaber. Sometimes Rabbeinu Tam, Reish Taf. So again, these are not, and these are not academic points that would dissuade any serious yeshiva bachar. This is not like saying, ah, again, ziyuf. But you have to look. The Sefer Mordechai, I'll prove that's the other thing that, that helps me a lot. The Sefer Mordechai has lots of names, dates, and serial numbers. And again, it's a good check. We tend not to use it because the printed edition is weak. But, you know, the the, the old edition, the, the yeshiva edition, the, I'm not, I don't work for Mahon Yushalayim, but their edition is very helpful. So uh, I told that to the Kolonai Yeshiva once. They said, hey, that's a good idea. 
So again, to the extent that you can inform yourself without completely schlepping yourself into it, you don't have to schlep yourself into it completely. You know, crazy people like me can try to schlep it, but you don't have to. Leave it to the crazy people like me, but if only, unless you're interested. Uh, look, I have Yeshiva Bachram and Bonot Yeshiva, who are my best doctoral students, because they've been learning all these things for years. But again, to your son, the Lamdin, who's not interested necessarily in the academic side, ain't no chayav liot. That's fine. Okay. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. We always say it's you know, a tip, just the tip of the iceberg here, but... Um... Time is up, and um, I hope I haven't gone too long or too not, too, uh, not at all, not at all. prosaically. But been... I get I just gave a zoom in Oxford, England, and I said something about Tsehamaz. I said, you know, tip of the iceberg, Tsehamaz Lake. You'll have to tell me what the British idiom for that is. British have great idioms, they didn't really have one. I don't know. I, you right. know, I thought you know, something of the something. We'll have to ask other people what their uh, idioms are, but anyway, thank you very much. And uh, listen, uh, bottom line. Rambam is very interesting. So is Tosot. I'm Tosot. It's uh... all right. Good. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.